those people would have some sort of immune protection, right? That's what the test would insinuate. And, and at the time I was maybe one of the first people that said, you know, this could be coming, that sort of immune protection could be coming from exposure to other coronaviruses because there's a lot of hmm. just standard cold-like coronaviruses that are circulating in our general population even before COVID came around. And so I was kind of hypothesizing in the um, conclusion section that maybe exposure to some of those coronaviruses are providing this cross-reactive protection against COVID. We each have our own gift to give and yours is unique. Welcome to the Calvin Corelli Show. I'm really excited to have you. Let me start by asking, what's your name? Because like Ian Felipe, oh. Ian Mar Martizis? Yes. Okay. So I'm officially Ian Martizis now. I had a hyphenated name. It was Ian Hilgart Martizis. And that was because of uh, my own parents' inaction. On the 4th of July, I got married and we were kind of deciding what name is my wife going to take. And at that time, I decided it, it was time to just cut off the hyphen and go with one name that um, it, it's my father's name. And, you know, it's just kind of tradition and simplify things a bit. So whenever I have kids, don't end up with three last names or, you know, whatnot. Got it. Yeah. So officially Ian Martizas. Right. Ian Felipe Martizas, actually. Okay, so Felipe is your middle name. Correct. All right, perfect. <laughs> it's good to know. Good to know these things. So the, the reason I wanted to talk to you is I've been, you know, following you on Twitter. I think you're following me, maybe. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe not. Uh, I am. You are following you, me, actually. Yes, I can see that now. Um, and we've, I, I've been following you. The, I think the first time I saw you, where you were tweeting about you were doing your own antibody study about around COVID, right? I think that was when I, you first came on my radar. So tell me about that. How did that happen? What's your background? Um, what are you doing? I essentially don't know much about you other than you know <laughs> the tweets so, that pop up. So I worked in bioscience for about 10 years and had a lot of experience in the lab doing different things. Um, and I had worked in cancer immunology for a while. Mm -hmm. And so I was kind of familiar with the immune system and then also some of the different techniques that are used in the lab to um, study that. Mm -hmm. uh, in 2019, I actually left science and I became a data analyst or I got recruited to be a data analyst outside of science. And then when COVID hit, you know, everybody was kind of wondering, have I had it before? Um, because the symptoms are pretty vague. They're, they're nonspecific. They're very similar to any cold or flu for the most part. There's some differences. but So I was kind of curious because, you know, everybody gets a cold or flu over the wintertime. And um, I happened to get email from a past vendor that said, oh, we have these this specific test. And it, from my background in science, I knew that's the test you need to assess somebody's antibody levels. What kind of right? test is that? which would tell you if you've ever had it. And so I just purchased one with my own credit card and was going to test myself. And then uh, it had space for 40 tests on the plate. Mm -hmm. And so then I thought, well, I might as well just try and fill up this entire plate and test as many people as I can. Mm -hmm. And so then I 
and I had a background in phlebotomy and so I could draw blood. And um, so I contacted some family and friends and said, hey, are you interested in participating in this? And, you know, everybody, of course, wanted to know if they had had it. Mm-hmm. And so um, I was able to draw their blood. And then I thought, you know, I should really like write this up and publish it because at the time there hadn't been any sort of a study like that done. And I'm thinking about it like in terms of all the different decisions that were being made kind of as a society, but we're making those decisions without any sort of insight into how far the virus is spread or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And so I thought I could help by pushing something like that out there for the world to see or whoever, you know, was interested to see what the prevalence was maybe in our community. I live in Portland. And so I wrote it up, published it to Twitter. It got shared a lot, a lot of views. I had published it to my own uh, website. And so then um, I was able to see just how many people were visiting the website and downloading the paper. And it was quite a lot because like I said at the time it hadn't been done before and when was and this was this back in what March or something when was that I forget that was April 7th mm. when I published it and what did you find how many how many people had had it at that time in your in your group well there were four out of 40 people who tested positive that's four, four, um, that's 10 percent yeah 10 percent and there's some caveats though, because you can't necessarily say that they had definitely had COVID, mm-hmm. but what you can say is that they have antibodies that at least react to, you know, the COVID docking protein, which is called spike one. Uh, so those people would have some sort of immune protection, right? That's what the test would insinuate. And, and at the time I was, maybe one of the first people that said, you know, this could be coming, that sort of immune protection could be coming from exposure to other coronaviruses because there's a lot of Hmm. just standard cold-like coronaviruses that are circulating in our general population even before COVID came around. And so I was kind of hypothesizing in the um, conclusion section that maybe exposure to some of those coronaviruses are providing this cross-reactive protection against COVID. And since then, we've seen some papers coming out from more um, official labs that that is in fact the case. Got it. Interesting. Yeah. I love, I love, so I'm a, I'm a software developer of background software engineer. So, so that sort of open source nature of, of, you know, the world now, right. Where we, like you can actually, you literally go and do the study and publish it and you hypothesize and then like kind of the, the mainstream catches up slowly. Um, I think that's so beautiful. I think it's really, really fina- fascinating. I think it's like, it's, it's the reality, right? It's like, you know, knowledge about what's real is not evenly distributed, right? It, it happens with individuals in certain places first. And those individuals don't necessarily work for the government or for the official, you know, apparatus behind this. So good work, man. Beautiful. What is your take on like where where are things at now? Um, do you I mean assuming you followed along and, and have some thoughts on that? In terms of how far spread the virus is, say yeah. in like the US. Yeah. 
it's definitely variable region to region. Mm-hmm. Like New York obviously got hit really hard uh, early. I saw a study that came out a couple months ago that said that 25% of the New York City population had had it already. And then I didn't see any new numbers. Maybe it's just that I didn't pay attention, but like you would think that they would keep publishing and updating that number. I haven't seen that. Is that, have you seen that? Is that out there? I haven't seen anything recent, but your um, the number you put out there, 25% is about what I heard last um, for New York. Right. Whereas I live in Oregon, Portland, Oregon, and uh, we have not been hit that hard here. We've never really had that high of a percent positive test rate mm-hmm. in the state. We haven't had that many cases. Um, so my kind of gut instinct is that if it's going to hit Oregon hard, it's going to be in the fall um, when there's a second wave, so to speak, comes back. And then other areas are getting different levels of the virus, you know, through their population. It's tough to tell. And so I started a serum survey, actually, a a national serum survey, I'm trying to, Mm -hmm. that would allow anybody in the country to do a finger stick from their home and send me their sample and I can test it for antibodies Mm. to try and determine exactly how widespread the virus is in different communities across the country. My goal is to test at least 10,000 people in the country and then put create an open source dashboard that shows on like a map of the US the relative um, prevalence of the virus, you know, by zip code or city or state, Mm -hmm. just so people can get a better idea of exactly what you're asking, how far spread it is. And then we also include a questionnaire with that, that will help us to assess the people that are most at risk. It has demographic questions and about occupations and previous known previous exposures and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm curious, like, so as a bioscientist, that's what you said, right? And data scientist. Yeah. Yeah. I worked in bioscience in a couple of different fields. Right. So with that background, in your estimation, what has this country or the world in general done right about this and what have we done wrong like what what are the main misconceptions out there when it comes to this virus in terms of doing things right i think that the the social distancing is key that's definitely helpful Mm -hmm. um we have done a lot of testing which is good i think that the masks work i think um you know if you're in a meeting room with somebody that's hacking up the lung, you know, you would definitely want to have a mask on or that person to have a mask on. Um, in terms of how much it helps prevent the spread, I'm not, I'm not sure. There's just so much contradictory science out there. Mm-hmm. It's really hard for me to follow along these days because there's agenda-driven science that is occurring. And that's also why I tried to, I'm trying to start up my own study because I just want to bring transparency to the situation and not do anything because I'm trying to prove a point mm-hmm. or you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. When you, so when you say that there's agenda driven signs out there, what are you seeing? Well, there's some studies that have been retracted, like the hydroxychloroquine studies um, that were retracted because it was just fraudulent data. Now I'm, 
with um, hydroxychloroquine, I'm not a believer myself. I'm not, I, I just don't know. Mm-hmm. Tr- truthfully, I could see it going either way. But what I do know is that there has been some studies that were not thoroughly vetted. They were published and it kind of seems like there were some motivations behind that to prove a point about hydroxychloroquine. Um, what point were they trying to prove that it worked or that it didn't work or that, that it didn't work, mm-hmm. that it didn't work. And so it's, you know, it's just sad because at the end of the day, like as somebody who is in science, you just want people to be truthful and honest. And there's, you know, a difference between like a healthy skepticism and then just hiding data or, you know, cherry picking data because it is going to help your your side obviously like that became sort of a political football and in my opinion once an argument turns into a political argument it just kind of lacks credibility anymore and then you can just go down the rabbit hole trying to figure out what is actually the truth or not and uh, you know you kind of never know and then there's been some states I think that have made hydroxychloroquine uh inpatient only prescription and it's like the safest drug ever and it's just wrong you know you that's those are decisions for physicians to make in my opinion Mm -hmm. and their patients right um there's that risk assessment and it shouldn't be up to politicians to make those sort of medical decisions especially in a new pandemic where nobody really knows um what to do we're kind of uh, making it up as we go along mm-hmm. and hoping for the best. Yeah. Have you, like, as part of a, a broader um, scientific community, have you seen firsthand these sort of, like, manipulations or peer pressure or, you know, things that, like, oh, like, we know what result is expected or some of these kind of shenanigans? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It definitely happens in science where um, people are – I. I call it foregone conclusion based research where they're trying to prove a conclusion and, you know, and not um, just kind of do experiments to figure out what's going on. It happens a lot in clinical trials. Um, You see it where a drug that's in development might have really good data in mice or in the phase one or phase two trials. But then once it's actually going head to head against stuff that we know works, it'll fail. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a certain amount of um, people just trying to get their drug bought, right? Before it gets to that point where it's going to fail. And so they will game studies, they change the um, primary objectives, right? Of a study along the way. Mm -hmm. So it, it definitely does happen. Yeah. And so you're saying that that scientists are humans too? Yes, they are definitely humans too. And mm. you know, it's not even like it in my opinion it doesn't even have to be a financial incentive. Right. I think that you know our ego drives a lot of it too. And if you're um the one that their your name's on the clinical trial or whatever, then you want it to succeed. Yeah. And that will just cause people to ignore data that undermines, you know, what they want to see. No, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. 
uh, yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. Like ego, ego, whatever. Like we have identity tied up in certain certain beliefs, certain certain outcomes. Yeah. What um, what about the placebo effect? Has you have you ever been involved or seen anyone that's actually studying that? Because it seems to me like the placebo effect is the most proven reality of like anything when it comes to medical science, right? We know that if people believe a drug works, then for a certain percentage of people, it actually does work. It seems to me like that would be a thing to study and figure out how to utilize because that would be really cost effective. Yeah, yeah. Um, it The placebo effect is definitely a real thing. I read an interesting book one time called How Healing Works. I think oh yeah, I have that. Called. I have that on my shelf here. Yeah. Okay. And um, that was written by um, a physician who worked at the NIH and their like alternative medicine division or whatever. Um, and he talks a lot about that. And it is a real thing. And, you know, one of the really interesting things about it was, or I found interesting in that book was he talked about how different cultures have different things that act as a placebo, mm. which is pretty fascinating. It just shows how um, involved the mind is. But mm. the one thing I would be careful to state is that the placebo effect is generally for things that are like perception based, like pain and focus. Mm. It, in terms of outcomes for specific diseases, it's just not going to happen. And, you know, the one really famous example is Steve Jobs. You know, he had a form of pancreatic cancer that is, um, it has better outcomes like pancreatic cancer. There's kind of two general types. And he had a type that was far more curable. Mm -hmm. And he decided to go with alternative medicine. Mm -hmm. You know, he didn't believe in Western medicine. And then before he died, he def he said, you know, I should have gone with the Western medicine to begin with. Yeah. So there are limitations. You can't just um, think your way to a cure for anything. Mm -hmm. But in terms of mindset, it, you know, it does help. It impacts. Yeah. Interesting. So, so <laughs> I'm wondering, so this is the first time we meet other than like just exchanging a few messages on Twitter, obviously. Yeah. I, like, do you know, what do you know about me? Do you know anything about me? Um, well, I looked you up and you, um, were, it says you're a SAS founder, mm -hmm. which is super cool. Um, and then, you know, I read some of your different stuff. It kind of seems like you got a lot of different things going on. You talk about fitness, you talk about mindset, you talk about business, entrepreneurship, you know, um, a lot of interesting things. It's pretty cool. Thank you, man. To, you know, hear about that. Definitely interested to hear more. Let's see. Um, what what exactly is your primary focus? And you got a podcast, obviously. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what is my primary focus? Yeah. Oh, shoot. That's like the worst question for me. My primary focus, I guess, is like all of the things. <laughs> it's kind of it's how I am. Um, yeah, I, so I've been doing the SaaS company, Simplero, for the past 11 years. And kind of been like, oh, you got to you got to focus on one thing and like really do that and build that and, and all that. But I finally realized that's just not who I am. Um, I am someone who's like, I got to have multiple irons in the fire. So this year I allowed myself to do more. So I'm starting I'm starting three new businesses this year um, at the same time. Uh, so they're not like they're not 
you know, completely. There's a one is a coaching is a coaching business. So I started the the software company because I was doing coaching. So that's not new in that sense, but it's still starting up a new business, a new a new coaching program, a new company uh, to do that. the The two other are health related, and they're they are about bringing to the U.S. slash to the global market some products that I didn't create, but that have changed my life. And one is a one is a meal replacement powder called body meal. I have it here. This is what it looks like on the market in Denmark. And cool. then there is a, a, uh, a workout program called Pafai. And both of them were created by a friend and mentor of mine in Denmark called Bengt Valentino Andersen. He's, um, he was the European karate champion in 1989. He is a body therapist. His grandfather made furniture and found that he could heal people with his hands, like, you know, help them overcome pain and stuff. And his his father then went on to work with Tour de France cyclists and top athletes and kind of further developed this thing. And then my friend, he turned it into an education. He's trained 600 therapists in this body therapy system, which is, I discovered it 13 years ago and it's been life-changing for me. So um, I want to bring that to the U.S. as well eventually, but for now we're taking the the workout program that he created 30 years ago and bringing that over here. Um, so. Yeah, those are those are some of my projects, and and then I have uh, Georgie here that you can see in the frame actually taking some pictures. Um, he's working on my on my personal brand team, so basically building, you know, getting serious about building a personal brand, building a social media following, and all of that stuff. So um, those are all of the things that I'm focused on right now. <laughs> so that's a lot. It is a lot. Yeah. Did I, you uh, find a way to add hours to the day or something? Because you got to share that secret. I know, right? Well, it's like, uh, I mean, it's it's obviously working through people, right? Working with other people, which is something that I've really had to learn. Because for the, for the past, it was all the way up till um, a little over a year ago, I was still in the code, actually writing the code. All the way up through the end of 2018, I was the only, like all of 2018, I was the only programmer that we had for Simplero. So I was sitting there like all by myself coding pretty much all day while trying to run. Like we, that year we grew from four to 14 people at the same time. But now what I have is like, so each of those areas, I also have another thing going on, which is Notable Nation. Have you seen that? I haven't been mm-hmm. blogging a lot about it. So it's in my Twitter profile. So what that is, is my long-term project for, for uh, fixing politics, essentially. Um, <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Yeah. And the, 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 the trick to that is, I, so I, um, I was, for U.S., but I'm Danish, uh, but I live here in New York City. And for U.S. politics, I always sort of associated more with the Democrats because um, mm-hmm. I didn't pay much attention. That seemed to be you know, where the reasonable people were and, and all my friends and all my fellow techies and developers and all that stuff. And then a couple of years ago, I started to deep dive into politics and actually pay attention to conversation and, and listen to some of those like forbidden sources. I always thought that like, you know, Fox News was like the Nazi, you know, evil monsters and, and <laughs> all of that stuff. Right. So I went and actually listened to some of those forbidden voices. And I was like, they got some points here and so started studying a bunch more. And so in that process, I essentially shifted. I wouldn't, I wouldn't associate, uh, you know, agree, associate with, with the Republican party, but shifted definitely more conservative. Right. And so what I realized in that process is that 
whether you're on the left, I'm, I'm not talking about the fringes and the crazies and, and the rioters mm. and looters, and I'm not talking about the politicians, but just the ordinary people, whether you're on the left or you're the right, we, we kind of roughly want the same things, right? We want mm. people to be healthy and happy and prosperous and, and safe. And, and, you know, we want planet earth to sustain human life for many years. Like people on the left feel, think that people on the right don't want these things. They do. They just disagree on how to get there. People on the right, you know, tend to think, well, they generally think that, that people, the, the, you know, sane people on the left want the same things, but they're misguided on how to get there. And then there's like the quote unquote lefties that are, that are, you know, far out and they may, may be hard to reach at some point. Right. But what I realized is that we want kind of the same things, but we can't talk to each other because we're emotionally very immature. And mentally mm -hmm. very immature and big part of the reason we're so unhealthy is that we're physically immature right mm -hmm. and spiritually mature like how many people know their purpose or feel like they have a sense of meaning in their lives right so and when they don't then you know i mean if you're busy if you know exactly what you're here to do and you're busy creating that life for yourself are you going to be out rioting and looting of course not right so mm -hmm. so there's that like spiritual immaturity and so that is notable nation is essentially that long-term project let's raise the maturity level of the population and then the politics is easy solving all these problems is easy right like you've been following scott adams i know right it's like climate change mm -hmm. easy nuclear right done right mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, it's not that complicated the, most of these issues it's like it's not a secret how you get healthy it's not a secret how you get prosperous right like these are things that are available to us they're known so you know it's yeah this like we're just making it really hard because we're stupid about it yeah definitely um i think uh the most fruitful way to engage with somebody who generally might not agree with you is to try and go upstream mm -hmm. and figure out where you do agree exactly. you know and then mm -hmm. you know use that as your anchor point yep. in the conversation right and totally. then it's much easier to have a discussion when once you've found a point that you agree on, mm -hmm. you know, and then you can people open up a bit more. Yeah. But, um, you know, and a lot of times, right, that that point of agreement is about what do we want? Right. Like we can like some people look at Trump and they hate him and some people look at Trump and they think he's like awesome, maybe a little flawed, mm -hmm. but like at least funny or something. Right. But like, it's all about how you perceive it. And, but then you can, like, if you turn the conversation and say, well, forget Trump, like, what do we actually want here? And mm -hmm. then that you can start to get agreement on that. And then you realize, oh, I perceive things this way. You perceive that way, things that way. Like Scott Adams talking about the two movies and one screen, right? Oh, we just actually see things differently. But if we dive down, we can kind of start to unpack that a little bit too. The, the tricky thing is um, that I think a lot of people take for granted is that everybody has a different set of experiences too. And so then that can make it difficult to get on the same page sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. So. And, and maybe we don't necessarily, you know, we can acknowledge that we have different experiences. Right. And then, and then, but there are also, again, there's always things that we all have in common, right? We've all experienced suffering. We've all experienced, you know, heartbreak, pain, you know, we're all, we're all human. We have feelings. So, yeah. Yeah. And there has to be a willingness to kind of um, do a bit of a postmortem assessment of, you know, whatever 
path you decide to go down to like address an issue, right? There's not enough of that. Me being a data analyst, I'm just always trying to figure out, you know, what was the most um, productive way mm -hmm. to solve that solution? Can we compare outcomes from different tests, right? Then you can slowly, like through an iterative process, get to, you know, the best solution at least mm -hmm. for the time being. Yeah. Right? But it has to be iterative and you have to look back and assess, you know, what you accomplished. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. You were, you're asking me before like hours in the day and how I accomplish it. So I was <laughs> trying to give you the answer and then I got sidetracked into notable nation. But here's what I do is I have every, every project of mine in my life in that way, every, you know, the, the workout and the body meal and Simplero and all these things, each one has a point person that owns it. And then I sync with them every Monday. And we talk about what's going to happen for the week and what they need to do and what I need to do. And then we wrap it up on Friday with like, how did the week go? But so every project someone else owns, it's not me, right? So it's all about putting the monkey on someone else's back. And then mm -hmm. I can do what I do best, which is doing what I'm doing here with you, connecting with you or, you know, uh, producing content. There's certain things that only I can do, like, you know, writing copy for things or setting the vision or the direction and that kind of stuff and freeing up my time to do that as much as absolutely possible. Everything else, someone else handles. And that's been, that's this year that I've really had to master that. And it's hard. It's a whole different skill set. Like I'm very good at doing shit myself. Like I'm very good at doing, at getting a ton of stuff done. That's not scaling at this point, right? That's not helping me at this point. Now it's about how do I coach others to do that and, and create the right structure around other people so they can do that. So whole yeah, so one of the big questions in the world is, you know, how do you uh, get compliance from somebody else mm -hmm. and, you know, get them to do what you want to do or communicate with them what you want to have done. Communication is difficult, mm -hmm. you know, between people and everybody interprets things differently. Yep. Um, so the more efficiently you can do it, the better off. You have to get them, like if, if I have to tell everybody what to do, that's super inefficient, right? I can't, mm -hmm. they, so you have to figure out how to get them excited about it, how to get them to feel it and, and not just say that they feel it, but like actually really feel it and believe in it. And so that they can use their own judgment, their own, you know, inner mm -hmm. energy to, to create the thing. And then we end up creating that thing together and it's not going to end up exactly the way I wanted it. It's hopefully going to end up a lot better because you know, I only have so much uh, vision and so much to to offer. I think one of, the, one of the most important things to remember if you're managing others or any, in any sort of capacity is that the, the best leaders turn other people into leaders. The best leaders aren't just dictating what somebody else does. Mm -hmm. You know, they're kind of uh, providing that person with the tools and, you know, the communication they need to make the most of whatever skills they have. And so you got to kind of let them go sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And finding that right balance of, of direction and setting the right structures and, you know, boundaries kind of around that. And then like, all right, now go add your genius to it. But like without people feeling boxed in and that they can't really, you know, be creative. And then, you know, when there's, mm -hmm. you know, differences in direction, how do you like, you know, coach that and get that turned around. So yeah, that's been, that's been my whole learning this year. I will say that like, 
I, it wasn't until last year that I finally got a personal assistant um, or as we call them around here, executive assistant. And I was like, it was one of my coaches that said, it's like, if you don't have an assistant, you are the assistant. And I was like, hmm, yeah, that sounds right. So I was like, I got to find one. And it, it took a couple of tries, but now I have one. I have a, we have a whole EA executive assistant team that are just freaking killing it. They're amazing. And I, there's no way I'd be able to do that. So I actually have my personal executive assistant. She, she's, project managing most of these projects along with whoever owns it so she helps them organize and just kind of my extension into the into the different that's, teams so that works awesome. brilliantly yeah i could use one of those maybe one day i'm in the um trying to get something going phase trying to get something to work phase what are you trying to get going really, really hoping my uh, company cure hub will get mm -hmm. going so what is that tell me about that um, well, after I did that initial serum survey, the antibody study, uh, mm -hmm. I got contacted by a lot of people who wanted to be tested because, you know, at the time it just wasn't available. And there was, you know, a uh, big risk going from testing family and friends to like drawing blood on family and friends to like testing people all over. And, you know, people all over the country were hitting me up, actually all over the world mm -hmm. um, were contacting me asking like how they could get tested. And so then I had to go through all the um, regulatory processes mm. to get okay to test other people. And so then I spun up a company called CureHub and figured out how to like uh, provide antibody testing to the public. And then I also figured out a way that I could get reach people anywhere in the country because I can't just go somewhere and draw blood. And then there's like a complicating factor, like somebody, maybe you could go to your doctor and get your blood drawn, but then people don't want to go to their doctor. So I developed this home sample collection kit where you can do a finger stick and collect your blood in a tube and send it back to me. And then I run your sample. And so that was a huge endeavor just to get approval to do that on my own. There's entire departments that are dedicated to doing that sort of thing at your normal medical center or whatever. Yeah. And I just, you know, went for it. My wife helped, a friend helped. We got our website going. We got the whole process going. I shipped out my first kits last week. And so now um, it's just a matter of Ooh. trying to get the word out there and reach people. Yeah, it's pretty crazy to think like, you know, back in March, I had no idea I was going to be doing that. If yeah. somebody would have asked, I'd say there's no chance I'd be able to accomplish that. And then, you know, here I am sending out kits, which is awesome. And then, you know, you wear a bunch of different hats. And so now I'm trying to figure out how could I reach more people, get um, them excited about the project, uh, get more samples coming in. Because like I said, if we can do that, we could really move the needle on COVID. And one of the things I really want to do is get um, people donating convalescent serum, which I, I don't know if you're familiar with. But Basically like blood, blood plasma, blood serum from when you've had the virus and then you've, you've developed the antibodies and now you can share it with other people. Is that the idea? Yeah, exactly. So your body, if you recover from the virus or any virus, really, your mm -hmm. body develops what's called adaptive immunity. And so it starts making antibodies against that. So you'll never, in theory, get sick from it again. Mm -hmm. Well, if somebody's in bad shape, they haven't had it be the virus before, um, you could take somebody's 
serum, which contains their antibodies right. and give it to the sick person. And it's really effective, but you need to kind of identify the people that have those antibodies mm -hmm. and then get them in that pipeline to donate their serum. I haven't been paying, paying close attention, but I, I care, keep hearing the president talk about how we're testing more people than, than ever. And like, you can get tested and, and get it an answer pretty quickly and all that stuff. So how does you, what you're doing compare to what the government is doing in that area? Well, there are, I wouldn't say the government, but there's, you know, like LabCorp request okay. or, you know, you go to yeah, your doctor's yeah. office, you can go to them and you can get an antibody test. But um, I, I don't think that the tests that they're using are very accurate. Oh. And um, Interesting. why wouldn't they use an accurate test? Would you know what, what that's about? Well, it's the nature of the test they're using. So your antibody levels, they're um, on a continuum, right? It's not just like a yes or no, do you have antibodies or not? It's kind of like, how much do you have? And the tests that are generally available through those sources give you, it's like a pregnancy test that says yes or no, positive mm -hmm. or negative, mm -hmm. you know, but the, each test has about a 10 or 15% variability just between tests. So then, you know, you can fall on either side of that positive negative cutoff. But if you don't know the specific numbers, you don't know why that is, mm -hmm. you know, or what to believe. So is that because um, they, I mean, in internally they know that number but they don't share it or no it's it... just not known it's okay. just kind of like uh like an absorbent pad that turns gotcha. colors essentially if okay. there's enough binding and but and, it's, it that that is calibrated to a certain level so if you're above that level or below that level it turns... yes okay got yeah. it and so instead of what you have is a test that actually gives you the number the raw number and then you can go interpret yeah. it yeah it takes um it takes more handling. Mm -hmm. It takes longer to How process is your number. So that's one reason it's not as common. I'm also using a test that it doesn't just tell you if you have antibodies. It tells you if your antibodies actually neutralize uh, kind of synthetic form of the virus. Mm -hmm. uh, because I, I actually just published a paper a week or two ago that showed you could test positive for antibodies, but those antibodies might not actually prevent the virus from attaching to the human receptor. Hmm. And so obviously if you're going to the doctor to get tested, you don't care if your antibodies don't do anything, right? Like, I mean, you would care in the sense of wanting to know, mm -hmm. but you want antibody, you want to know for sure if those antibodies do or don't neutralize the virus. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I found a test that addresses that question and that's what the one i'm going with and um that's why i think it would be really advantageous to get a lot of people involved because then on the study because then if we can identify those people who are neutralizing the virus with their antibodies then we can get them to donate convalescent serum mm -hmm. and there was actually last weekend a report from the FDA that the convalescent serum reduces mortality by 50%. It's it's the most oh. effective treatment right. out there today. And it seems like super obvious, like, like blood doping for Tour de France riders kind of thing, right? I mean, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I'm going to have to start using that. Yeah, right. I mean, we know there it worked really well. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. obviously, it's <laughs> a different, different thing here. But yeah. Um, so, what what's like, what is your dream for the, for the, the cure hub? Um, what do you want it to become? Well, I think it would 
You know, I think one of my goals for a long time has been kind of to be a disruptive force in healthcare. I nice. see, I like I've that. seen a lot of the issues in healthcare firsthand, and there's a lot of hands in the pot. And so I think we need something that kind of eliminates the middlemen. Mm-hmm. And I really like telehealth for that purpose. Mm-hmm. Now, could I use the COVID antibody testing to springboard into that sort of thing? That would be my goal, you know, pie in the sky dream. You could uh, start to take the test kit that I have or the sample collection kit I have, and you could start to develop it for other types of lab tests that people generally go to their doctor with. Mm -hmm. Now imagine if you can, and you know, our kit, we ship it right to your house. Now imagine if that was coupled with a telehealth Mm -hmm. app or -hmm. something like that, right? Then, you know, you have your ability to see the doctor from your house and then your doctor says, hey, well, we need you to do these tests. We're just going to ship this kit to you. You do a finger stick and then that finger stick sample gets sent to the lab and you never had to leave your house. Mm -hmm. And then you cut out a lot of the middlemen, you know, the administrators that are at the hospital or clinic. And hopefully that drives down costs and everything like that, too. Yeah. Yeah, I like it a lot. Uh, yeah, I need to get one of those kits. I want to know if I had it. I think I had it back in March. I had like three days with a fever and loss of smell and, you know, and you're in New York too, right? New York, Yeah. So would be, would be cool to know what my antibody level is and, and how immune I am at this point. And then I, yeah. And you're in New York. So chances are high. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You might've had it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I've, I decided that I talked to my, again, my, the creator of body meal and, and that workout. And he was, he was given his knowledge of the human body and, and healing and everything that he's done over the past. Like he's 55 years old. He's been doing this since he was a kid. Right. So he grew up with this and he's like, this thing is way overblown. It's not very dangerous. Like if you're healthy and have a, a well-functioning immune, immune system, you're fine. That was like him back in March. And so I had, and I've essentially been living my life as if it didn't exist since then. Um, and yeah, uh, I'm fine. It, it is for most people say under 55 or 60, mm-hmm. pretty low risk. But, you know, you were talking about what I know about the data and stuff like that. Um, I actually just talked to a friend who's a analyst. He's a healthcare analyst for an insurance company, which I thought would be a good source mm-hmm. to go to because he's seen all the claims data. So that sort of thing won't lie. And he said, based on um, inpatient visits, emergency department visits and mortality, it's about five to 10 times worse than the um, seasonal flu. Mm-hmm. And But most of the people, the vast majority of people with poor outcomes are elderly, you know, like 65, right. 70 plus. Right. Or obese or diabetic or some other thing going on, right? Yeah, and the comorbidities is a huge thing, yeah. unfortunately, um, yeah. because you can't, that's something it's difficult to protect against immediately, right? You mm-hmm. can't just snap your fingers and reverse diabetes or obesity. Yeah, 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 no. Yeah, no, so for me, it was the point was more like, I, I bet I've been exposed to it at this point, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing, but it would be cool to know. So cure-hub.com and then and then I sign up for a kit there and you'll send it one in the mail. Yeah, we go there's like a sequence we're still working on the 
the full integrations on the back end. Okay. So like you sign up and then I have to send you the screening form and then you fill out the screening and then I send you the consent and then you, I send you the payment link and then the questionnaire and then I ship a kit to your house. Cool. There's been a few people who have made it through, so it's, <laughs> it's doable. All right, cool. How much is it? It's $125 plus shipping and handling. It ends up being 160 gotcha. total. All right, cool. All right, I'll I'll have to do that. I'll have to try to see what what comes out of that. Yeah, you gotta add your data to the crowd, and you know, um, just the more information you can get out there and mm -hmm. make public. I'm gonna make the uh, so I'm gonna take the data, mm -hmm. de-identify it all, um, so nobody can link the um, results back to any particular person, mm -hmm. and then I'm publishing it on these open access dashboards, and I'm gonna make that de-identified data available to download. So any right. to kind of crowdsource the data analysis, mm -hmm. just because like I said, transparency is a big thing. The, the two main goals of the project is one transparency and then um, two, like identifying those potential donors for convalescent serum yeah. therapy. That's great. So uh, what do you need help with right now? What, what, yeah. What's the biggest thing? I think thing getting the help? word out, I have been trying on my own to, you know, spread the word. I think now I need to start targeting organizations to get people, larger groups of people mm -hmm. enrolled because if to really make this project as valuable as possible for the public, right, to, to get the information out there, that's where the value is. Mm -hmm. um, we need a lot of people so that then it's statistically significant, right? If I just test you in New York, Mm -hmm. We don't know much about New York, but if I could test a thousand people in New York sure. and then a thousand people in L.A. and, you know, like Houston, all over the country, then we can start to kind of formulate some conclusions or at least have a better idea of what's going on. Mm -hmm. And so that's the big thing is just getting the word out, getting people enrolled in the project. And then I'll do my part, you know, I'll. I'll get those people tested. I'll run those tests. I'll ship them kits. I'll put the data, the de-identified data out there for everybody to see, you know, and I think timing's in of the essence now, because if there is a second wave that hits, it'll hit probably starting in October or so mm -hmm. in the fall when it's cold and flu season again. And if we could start to identify those potential donors now, you can kind of, bank you can bank the serum you can freeze it down actually so then you can prepare for the winter all right nice all right let's do it i'll do what i can to help you get the word out um yeah are you doing advertising or anything like that for this uh i haven't started much yet i put some flyers up in town i'm gonna start doing facebook advertising mm -hmm. um soon i have a cure hub account on facebook and so mm -hmm. use that but yeah, that's, that's really it. It's, it's tough on my own. I'm not going to lie. Like, you yeah. know, you can only do so much. So I, I do enjoy the challenge of trying to figure out what uh, will work and what doesn't work. You know, I, I love a challenge, mm -hmm. but at the same time, you, you, this like windows closing and, you know, there's time element, there's everything else that's going on. And so it's, it can be a little stressful. Yeah. 
All right, man. Let me know how I can help. I'm, I'll I'll do my my part to spread share spread the word. And uh, I love I want let's stay in touch, man. I wanna I wanna support you in what you're doing. I love being a disruptive force in healthcare. We so need that. Like it's it's the to me it's crazy the conversation that happens in politics over like should it be single payer healthcare or like this that and the other. I'm like. A, can we can we try like an actual free market healthcare? Because it doesn't seem like we've ever tried that. <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, there's just like you said, so many hands in the pie in the pot trying to like suck draw blood from everybody and um, pun in, pun intended, I guess, and um, profit off of people being sick. And yeah, it's just it's not working great the way it is right now. Yeah, I'm I'm confident if I can get this antibody study to work and get enough people enrolled and generate momentum for a cure hub, then I can take it to the next level. Mm -hmm. But the, the tricky part is convincing people to participate. It's, yeah. yeah. All right, man. Let's do this if you want. So I'm planning on doing some some live uh, Q and A things. So if you if you want, like you're more than welcome anytime we can jump on and I can help you troubleshoot on whatever you're you happen to be facing at that at that time um happy to offer my support to you that'd be great I really appreciate it and um same goes for you I don't know what I could offer <laughs> but uh yeah anything I'm into fitness too I do triathlons or I oh, did nice. before they all got canceled all right and stuff. very so. cool all right, tons of things. We'll have to save that for next time. Uh, yeah. Ian, it was great to it was really great to meet you. I really appreciate your, the work that you're doing. I appreciate that you're, man, like you're taking a chance on this thing. You're taking an initiative and just on your own solving things that no one else has has uh, seemingly tackled. And you were very early with this stuff. So, I mean, good job, man. Really good job. I really appreciate you. Yeah, there's a. Uh... Time's going to go by no matter what. You just got to do something with it. <laughs> That's so true. That is true, man. All right, my friend. Be well. Stay in touch. And um, yeah. Anything th that you want to leave people with before we hop off? Go to curehub.com. Participate. Let's get this going. I think I have some really good ideas on how we could, uh, you know, disrupt healthcare. Right. But I can't do it on my own. If anybody wants to help me, Along the way, you can contact me through uh, contact at cure-hub.com and um, talk to you more. I'm open to collaboration. I, I love talking to other other people who are proactive and like to take initiative and stuff like that. Excellent. Very good. We'll have the links up. So I have you on Twitter, Ian Felipe says, and then uh cure-hub.com and other any other like social media other um places you want to send people i only i only have a twitter there's a cure hub uh facebook account Got it. but for me personally no it's just that um twitter all right very good man good luck with everything stay in touch and um we'll talk soon i'm sure i'm sure Thank you for listening to the podcast episode. After 20 years as a serial entrepreneur, it's my passion to bring you ideas and insights from some of the best entrepreneurs, leaders, and thinkers in the world straight to your phone. We're gonna be launching many, many more podcast episodes in the future, so please subscribe and leave a five-star review if you found any value at all from today's conversation. 
Your reviews and feedback mean the world to me.